God, may that be our prayer. That we are sealed. That our hearts are sealed. Our minds are sealed. Our lives. God, that we have eternity in mind as Christians. That we that we dwell on that. We dwell on you. We dwell on Christ, dwell on Christ because of Christ. That we have that gift. We thank you for that. In your name we pray. Amen. And again, good morning and welcome to Christ Community Church. If you need a bulletin that has an outline, you can follow along and we'll be happy to hand you one. Uh, I want to talk about uh, our logo for just a minute. We've been in the book of Genesis going through the life of Joseph for the last few weeks. Um, And you may or may not have noticed that there are two pictures going on up there. Uh, One's a little hard to see. Uh, The story of Joseph is really about two things. Um, Literally and figuratively, the story of Joseph is about favor and it's about famine. It's about favor and it's about famine. And both of those ideas are represented. But you may be in in various places in your life uh, in, in how you think, well, my life is a life of favor or my life is a life of famine. Some of you may be here where really all you think about or all you notice or all you experience is God's favor. And so none of that other stuff in the background is really visible in your life. Like Joseph's coat of many colors, which signified his father's favor towards him as firstborn, as heir of what he would, of what he would get. It just may be colorful. Your life may just be colorful and clean and nice. But your life also... Uh, Or maybe you feel like, no, my life is more like a famine. Uh, Right now, it just feels like I'm getting beat up left and right. That there is no favor, that I can't figure out where God is in the midst of what's going on. And I look about like that dried up crop right there, or at least I feel that way. Chances are, most of you are somewhere in between. That there's a bit of favor, but in the background, there's always that that idea of I'm struggling. That idea of there's that sin I just can't overcome. That idea of why is life so difficult? And while you may know and understand and experience and appreciate God's favor, in the background there's always just that idea of one bad decision, one more thing that goes wrong, and and I feel like my life is just going to head down. Both of those ideas play in the Christian's life throughout his or her life. Um, and so I think Joseph is a, is a good book for us to experience that and to understand that uh, and to think through what God is doing in the midst of both of those things going on in our lives. Because whether you recognize it or not, whether you're experiencing it or not, the Bible speaks of the fact that uh, if Christ is our Savior, that we are favored. And whether you realize it or not, or whether you're experiencing it or not, we live in a world of sin. uh, And indeed, famine is just right around the corner, whether that's literally or figuratively of of something else. 
This morning we are in Genesis chapter 37. We'll begin in verse 12 in just a moment and go to the end of that chapter, rather long section. Um, one of the things I like about narrative uh, is that it's not complicated. Most of the stories in the Bible really aren't difficult to understand. They're not difficult to get. We read them and you go, okay, that makes sense. But usually on a surface level, what we've got to do and what our task is, not only this morning, but every time we open up the Scriptures to read, is what is God teaching me through this story? Because that's how God spoke and that's how He revealed Himself in the Old Testament is is He revealed Himself through the story of His people and His interaction with them or sometimes His lack of interaction with them. And so the first question we've got to ask is, what is God teaching? What are the principles that this passage tells me? And then second, what is my response? What's the application? Okay, I've read the story, a nice story, or or maybe not a nice story. Uh, I've figured out what the principles are that God's trying to communicate, but what does it have to do with me today, 21st century Cherokee County, with my family and my friends and my neighbors and at work? What does that look like? How does that bear out? So that's our goal this morning is to look at the story and then look at some principles and then look at some application. Uh, I'm going to read beginning in chapter 37 and I want you to... These three principles are going to come out. The first is poor behavior in the past will lead to a lack of trust in the present. Poor behavior in the past will lead to a lack of trust in the present. The second principle is jealousy desires to be satisfied. Jealousy desires to be satisfied. And finally, sin always paints a pretty picture. So I'm going to begin in verse 12 of Genesis chapter 37. Then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come and I will send you to them. And he said to them, I will, said to him, I will go. <clears throat> then he said to him, Go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock, and bring back word to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. A man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field, and the man asked him, What are you looking for? He said, I'm looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they are pasturing the flock. The man said, They've moved on from here, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. When they saw him from a distance, and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Now then come, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits, and we will, and we will say, A wild beast devoured him. But then let us see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, Let us not take his life. Reuben further said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him, that he might rescue him out of their hands and restore him to his father. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers, they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him, and they took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. Then they sat down to eat a meal. And as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels bringing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. For he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. 
And now Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit. So he tore his garments. He returned to his brothers and said, The boy is not there. As for me, where am I to go? So they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood. And they sent the varicolored tunic and brought it to their father and said, We found this. Please examine it to see whether it is your son's tunic or not. Then he examined it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son for many days. Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, Surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And I pray, God, as we look at this morning, that you would encourage us, that you would speak truth to our hearts, and that we would trust you and be obedient. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Poor behavior in the past leads to a lack of trust in the present. I'd ask you a couple weeks ago to go back and read an earlier chapter in Genesis when all the brothers had gone to Shechem and basically... uh, killed the vast majority of of that town because they had uh, violated their sister. Shechem was a place where the sons of Jacob had not treated people well. They had made themselves, as the scripture said, odious in those people's sight. Um, And yet here it is now, they've gone back to pasture the flock there. And it's not like they lived around there. At some point in time between chapter 34 and chapter 37, Jacob had moved on. And the valley of Hebron is about 50 miles from Shechem. These brothers who Joseph had already brought back a bad report once before have gone back to a place where they'd caused trouble in the past and Jacob doesn't trust them. Joseph, you better go check on your brothers. See, Poor performance in the past leads to lack of trust in the present. Our behavior is important. People are watching us. People are looking at our actions every day and forming conclusions about what we do. You may say, well, that's not fair. They don't know my heart. I've changed. Yeah, I made a mistake in the past, but I'm a different person. You're right. People don't know your heart. But you know what they do know? What they can see. Whether we like it or not, whether it's fair or not, people will look at our actions and they will make decisions about who we are and what we've done. And what we're going to do. Whether Jacob's sons had any ulterior motive other than finding some nice grass and wanting to get away from the house and take a long road trip with the sheep, or whether they were up to trouble, we don't know. The text doesn't say. But Jacob felt the need to send Joseph to check on him again. And so he did. He didn't trust them. They weren't trustworthy. It reminds me of that story that I read at the beginning about Paul and John Mark. They'd gone the first missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas, they'd taken Barnabas' cousin Mark. And at some point in time along the way, again, the text doesn't say why. Mark said, I'm going back home. Whether he was frustrated by some persecution, whether he was tired, whether he missed his mommy, we don't know. But he left. 
And so they decided to go back and visit all those churches. And Barnabas said, let's take Mark. And Paul says, no, we're not taking him. I mean, we were depending upon him and he left. We're not doing that. I'm not, fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, shame on you. I'm not doing that. And there was a sharp disagreement, the text says, between Paul and Barnabas. I don't trust him. I saw his behavior. Whether he's changed or not is irrelevant in Paul's mind at that point in time. I don't trust him. I'm not taking him. Especially you young folks. Your behavior, the way you respond is important. People will make value judgments based on what you do. Right or wrong, whether we like it or not, it happens. And so it's important that we watch our behavior. But you know what a bigger issue is? It's not really what everybody else thinks. People will make judgments. People will come to conclusions. You know what's more important for you? Is what does God think of your behavior? What does God think of your behavior? Ultimately, that's the issue that matters. Do, do, we, wanna, do we want to portray a Christ-like image to the world? Certainly we do. But the world will make decisions about us, whether we like it or not, sometimes correctly, sometimes incorrectly. But God is the only one who judges righteously. And it's His opinion of us that matters. There's another side of that coin, though. The other side of that coin is not just that, that people are going to look at us and make judgments. We have the opportunity, as we look around, we also will make judgments. It's human nature. But the question is, are we willing to forgive? See, at one point in time, Paul was not willing to forgive. Maybe he hadn't seen enough of John Mark's behavior to change to think that he was any different. But as you know, as you read through Colossians, we read at the end of that book that Paul actually asks for him. At the end of Ephesians, then in, in Colossians, he, he says that he's useful, that he's helpful. At some point in time, reconciliation happened. At some point in time, forgiveness took place. There may be someone in your life that you know who has exhibited poor behavior all along and you just don't trust them. Well, that's okay. You, you may not need to trust them. But the issue is, will you forgive them? And if they have changed, and if they are exhibiting a different behavior, are you willing to enter back into fellowship and, and love them and care for them and help restore them to the place they need to be? Are you willing to say, like Paul was with John Mark, he's useful? Are you willing to forgive? Because you know what? In God's eyes, every single person in this room is unworthy of being used. We've offended God. And yet He chose, out of His goodness, to send His Son on our behalf. And that's good news for us. He chose to forgive. He chose to, to allow us a second chance. To be useful for His kingdom. 
And so the principle is true. Poor behavior in the present, in the past, will result in someone judging you in the future or someone not trusting you in the future. But for us, the application, will you be slow to sin and will you be quick to forgive? Will you be slow to sin and will you be quick to forgive? Something we can all work on every single day. In the body and and outside the body. Slow to sin, quick to forgive. The second principle that I mentioned at the beginning is jealousy desires to be satisfied. The brothers saw him coming. They're already jealous of him. They're already mad at him. They already don't like him because he's been favored. Because he's had these dreams. And jealousy says, I have to be satisfied. And there really are two ways that jealousy is satisfied. Number one, you get rid of what you're jealous of. (laughs) And then you're okay. Or number two, you work really hard to overcome whatever that is that you don't have or that you wish would go away. We do both of those things all the time. We want to get rid of what makes us jealous or we want to work really hard to overcome that. The brothers chose the former. Here he comes. Let's get rid of him. The other story I read at the beginning, Cain and Abel. Abel's sacrifice was pleasing. Cain's was not. Cain chose the former. If if I get rid of Abel, (laughs) everything will be okay. If we get rid of Joseph, we won't have to worry about being jealous anymore. It'll all work out. And so, jealousy seeks to often erase what's in the way. As you think about your life, as you think about envy or jealousy or covetousness, where do you fall? Do you tend to want to get rid of what is causing you jealousy or do you tend to want to just pull up your bootstraps and work harder? They've got that. I'm going to work hard and get it too. Is satisfaction for you wrapped up in removing the obstacle or is satisfaction for you wrapped up in I'm going to satisfy my desires. I'm going to satisfy my needs. Those are, the, those are the two ways that we deal with jealousy, with envy, with covetousness. Paul dealt with that in Philippians chapter 2. Why don't you turn and let's look at that briefly together. I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 1. Paul was in prison. There were some people that were envious of him and jealous of him. Paul writes in chapter 1, in verse 12, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. For people that Paul knew who were jealous of his success, who were jealous of his great ministry throughout much of the Roman Empire, and they 
when he was thrown in prison, aha, now's our chance to become Paul. Now's our chance to take over that, that job of the great missionary, the great apostle. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The later do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives. So how did Paul deal with that? How did he deal with other people who were envious of him? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this... I rejoice. See, he, he ultimately trusted, instead of being envious of them, which he could have been, here I am in prison, God, and these people are taking my role. They're ministering where I should be ministering. They're involved in people's lives that I should be involved in. Maybe they're discipling guys that I got started in the faith, and, and I should be doing that, God. That's, that's my job. Instead of being envious, he said, you know, I'm, I'm trusting Christ in this. Their motives may be horrible, but they're proclaiming Christ. And, and I know that God is bigger than that and he can use that in people's lives. And I rejoice because, you know what, it's not about me, Paul says. It's about the gospel going forth. And so the question for you and I is, are, are we going to be satisfied in God? Are we going to be satisfied in Christ? Or does our satisfaction come from something else? Will you be satisfied in Christ? Back to Genesis. The last thing we need to recognize is that sin paints a pretty picture. When you are tempted, you are never getting the full story. Sin's got a paintbrush, and sin is going to paint the best possible picture for you so that you are convinced this is the right way to go. You see, the brothers thought if we get rid of Joseph, all of our problems will be solved. But they never thought about the consequences of their actions. Ever. Never comes up. Oh, what's dad going to think? What's it going to do to our relationship? See, what sin does is it, it, it somehow fogs over our mind so that we either ignore the consequences or we downplay them so much that we think, if I do this, whatever this is, it's going to be okay. And some part of our brain shuts off and we fail to recognize that there are consequences for sin. And so the brothers hatch this plan, let's kill him. Reuben comes along and says, no, let's, let's not do that. That's not a good idea. And the text says he wants to restore him to his father. So let's just throw him in this pit. And, and I guess Reuben thought he would talk him into it, thought he would talk him out of it. We don't know where he goes, but in his absence, they come up with another plot while they're eating lunch. It's funny, there's, in, in Hebrew, the, as they, they sat down to eat, sounds a whole lot like the Hebrew word for wild animals, which is what they originally wanted to tell Dad. Hey, guess what? He's been eaten by wild animals. I think what 
Moses is saying is the wild animals are not out there, they're in here. The wild animals were the brothers. The wild animals were the, the plotting and the scheming and the jealousy and the hatred and the anger. That's what we have to fear. It's not lions and tigers and bears. It's, it's in here. But they never thought about the consequences. And what were the consequences? Well, they sell him, number one, so they're, they're missing one brother. Reuben, who was trying to save him, comes back and he's grieved. And he says, the boy is not there. As for me, where am I to go? As, as kind of the, the oldest and the one who's supposed to take care of things, he knew, his, he knew that part of that responsibility lay on him. And he's crushed. And he's grieved. So they go ahead with their plan. They, they dip the, the tunic in blood. They take it to the dad. Ah, oh, this must be Joseph's. And, and I guess they assume that he'll be sad, but then he'll get over and everything will be okay. And he doesn't. And the text says he grieves for many days. And the text says that I will go down to my death grieving. I'm not going to get better. And they, they try to comfort him, but it doesn't work. They have nothing that they can offer their father. And then we read an, an interesting verse that almost kind of seems like a throwaway verse. It leads into the next chapter. And part of the problem with chapter divisions is that they make a stop at the end of 37 and we don't make the connection. But chapter 38 verse 1 says, It came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers. Whose idea was it to sell Joseph? It was Judah's idea. And whether out of guilt or whether out of they all turned on him and blamed him, the text doesn't say, but he separates from his brothers. And I promise you, when they were thinking and they were planning and they were scheming in their jealousy and their anger, they never thought this decision is going to destroy our family. This decision is going to is going to grieve our father to the point where he's not ever going to be happy again. This decision is going to drive one of our brothers from us. I promise you, it never crossed their mind. It never entered in. And so for us, for you and I, one of the things that we have to fight against is that pretty picture that sin paints, because it will paint a pretty picture for us. It will say, here's what life's going to be like if you go ahead and take and eat. Same thing that Satan told Adam and Eve. Look how good it's going to be. Surely you're not going to die. And what we have to do, what you and I have to do, is believe that sin has consequences. It's easy sometimes to, to sit in church because I've done it a thousand times. I've done it standing up here before to put yourself outside the diagnosis of Scripture. To maybe even say in your mind, well, I'm glad so-and-so is here this morning. They really needed to hear that. You may have done that before. I've done that before. And yet we need to individually evaluate our heart and say, God, where does this speak to me? But you know what? If we stopped here, 
If we stop with just be slow to sin and quick to forgive, be satisfied in God, believe that sin has consequences, if we stop there, we're missing something. In fact, we're missing the whole point. Because there's a much greater consequence for your sin than the consequences we've talked about. The greatest consequence of my sin and the greatest consequence of your sin is the death of the Son of God on the cross. You may experience consequences in your life for your sin, but there is nothing greater than my sin and your sin sent our God and Savior to the cross. And if we camp in those little points that I gave you, if that's where we stay, then what we will do is, in our own efforts, or maybe not, seek to correct that. But if you don't make that jump in your mind that, My sin, while it may have consequences here, it has eternal consequences in that I crucified my Lord. And if we don't make that connection, then we won't change. And that's why we celebrate communion together on a a regular basis. We need the reminder that our sin caused Christ to go to the cross for us. That He sacrificed His body, that He shed His blood, that despite the fact that we are often envious and jealous, despite the fact that sometimes we're slow to forgive, despite the fact that we fail to recognize the consequences for our sin, That we're forgiven. That we've been made righteous through the blood of Christ. And you do not have the ability or the strength or the power to do that on your own. And so we celebrate together. Would you take a moment where you are and and just talk to God. Ask Him to reveal to your heart places that, that you need to depend upon Him to change. It may be something we've talked about this morning. It may be something completely different. Would you search your heart and ask God to to reveal to you where it is He'd like for you to change? And then in just a moment, we're going to sing one more song together, then we're going to partake of communion. Would you pray?